Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. The last time when I talked about um, gladness connected with wholesome states and um, increasing wholesome states that have arisen. Um, a couple of people came into interviews and, and appreciated the talk and said, it just seems like it's so hard to stay there all the time. And just, I wonder if it's, uh, you know, it might be unrealistic to, you know, think that we're supposed to be happy all the time. And, uh, I think it is unrealistic to expect that you're supposed to be happy all the time. <clears throat> that's why the Buddha started off with the first noble truth. Maybe kind of relieve the pressure a little. And I wanted to start off by um, something that I didn't mention in the, in the last talk, uh, which is um, that happy people... You know, I talked about that book, uh, How We Choose to Be Happy. And uh, what they found after three years of research and interviewing about 300 people is that truly happy people aren't happy all the time. And that when they found somebody who said, oh yeah, I'm happy, I'm always happy, uh, usually they were in denial and uh, underneath there was a lot of other stuff that was happening. So I want to um, start off by reading the definition of, their definition of, um, a happy, of happiness and, uh, and then continue our discussion. <clears throat> our definition of true happiness is a profound, enduring feeling of contentment, capability, and centeredness a rich sense of well-being that comes from knowing you can deal productively and creatively with all that life offers, both the good and the bad. It's knowing your internal self and responding to your real needs rather than the demands of others. It's a deep sense of engagement, living in the moment and enjoying life's bounty. That sense of engagement is what I've been finding in uh, the, my own research on uh, happiness that it's about connection with the moment, with ourselves. It's about authenticity. And mostly those things allow us to experience our aliveness as it comes through us. As I mentioned last time, um, happiness doesn't have anything or little to do with circumstances or conditions. And I want to uh, address a few myths uh, about happiness from these uh, from a few different resources. Here's one, a survey Survey after survey has shown that desi- desire for material goods is a happiness suppressant, which has increased hand-in-hand hand with average income. One study found that young adults who focus on money, image, and fame tend to be more depressed, have less enthusiasm for life, and suffer more physical symptoms such as headaches and sore throats than others. People tend to embrace material values when they are feeling insecure. Retail therapy, anyone? And that, in this uh, book on authentic happiness, one thought, one interesting uh, statistic 
Individuals who become paraplegic as a result of spinal cord accidents quickly begin to adapt to their, cre- in- to their greatly limited capacities, and within eight weeks they report more net positive emotion than negative emotion. People with extreme quadriplegia, this is ongoing, not just recent onset, of those people, 84% consider their life to be average or above average. Isn't that interesting? So it really is about what goes on in here, in the mind. And that it just so happens those who are practicing inclining the mind towards seeing what's good and what's uplifting in life while seeing the truth of reality as it is, tend to be not only happier, but healthier as well. Um, Again, in this book, Authentic Happiness, pessimists, Seligman has found over the last two decades, are up to eight times more likely to become depressed when bad events happen. They do worse at school, sports, and most jobs than their talents would indicate, and have worse physical health and shorter lives. And then he found, I found that teaching 10-year-old children the skills of optimistic thinking and action cuts their rate of depression in half when they go through puberty. So there are some good reasons to incline the mind towards this if you didn't need any before. And that um, seeing the good is, uh, has many benefits and is just an internal way of relating to the world. And it, uh, it's been found that people have a natural set point you know, some people are naturally on different levels of the happiness scale, but wherever you are, it can be practiced and developed and increased over and over again. These, that's what these studies have shown. Here's one story of an uh, optimist and pessimist, story of identical twins. One was a hope-filled optimist, and the other twin was a sad and hopeless pessimist, and their worried parents brought the boys to a local psychologist. He suggested to the parents a plan to balance the twins' personalities. (laughs) On their next birthday, put them in separate rooms to open their gifts. Give the pessimist the best toys you can afford and give the optimist a box of manure. (laughs) The parents followed these instructions and carefully observed the results. When they peeked in on the pessimist, they heard him audibly complaining, I don't like the color of this computer. I bet this calculator will break. I don't like this game. I know someone who's got a bigger toy car than this. Tiptoeing across the corridor, the parents peeked in and saw their little optimist gleefully throwing the manure up in the air. He was giggling. You can't fool me. Where there's this much manure, there's got to be a pony. So we develop these habits, and the habits die hard, but they can be trained. We can learn to see in another way. And I want to, again, um, reiterate that it's not un-Buddhist to develop wholesome states. Remember the Buddha saying, that gladness connected with the wholesome I call an equipment of mind. And when we are doing the metta practice and we are saying, may I be happy, Even if we don't feel it, we are planting the seeds, that intention for happiness, that sooner or later does sprout. But it can't be forced. You can't be there with an expectation or impatience. It's not forcing. It's simply inviting the mind to open up to that possibility. So today I want to continue with that... um, with this theme and look at the different ways that we can and are cultivating practice 
uh, cultivating happiness and joy in our practice. And the, the thing is that the things that I'll say are not new to you, but I would encourage you as you hear them to open to the possibility of being with them with the intention of inclining the mind towards happiness when they arise. So it's simply that shift in, um, in allowing and having that as part of on your radar screen. Um, so the first thing is mindfulness, what we're doing here. Mindfulness, just seeing things as they are, is a kind of bland word sometimes. You know, where's the, where's the juice? Mindfulness. If you think of it as fullness of mind or fullness of heart, then what we're talking about is a true engagement with the moment. And I've come to see in recent um, times mindfulness as a practice of appreciation, as a practice of appreciating this moment of life and honoring it with our presence. Because it's the only one that there is. It's never been here before. It will never be here again. And if we can bring a friendliness, a a non-contentiousness with the moment, as Sylvia often says, then we can not only receive it, but find the gems in it. And there is a gift in every moment. You know that expression. That's why it's called the present. Well, it's true. There is a gift in every moment. And when we take refuge in the Dharma, what we're doing is taking refuge and seeing that this moment has something to offer me that will help me awaken even more. Thich Nhat Hanh says, Each moment in the light of awareness becomes sacred. Mindfulness is really a sacred act. Now, there's a difference between appreciating and grasping. It's a very fine line between enjoying and attachment. And so the appreciation is seeing the the, the beauty or the, the, the gift in the moment without having any idea that it will stay, but just to see how ephemeral it is, it even more demands or calls for our attention. You know, there's the practice of the preciousness, reflecting on the preciousness of human birth. Well, we can take that down to a more subtle level and see it as the preciousness of this moment, the preciousness that we're alive, the preciousness that the awareness, that there's an awareness here to open to the moment and know it. Now, of course, when the moments are pleasant or wholesome, why not appreciate them? When there's calm, when there's concentration, when there's clarity, when there's a feeling of compassion, when there's ease. As I said the last time I I spoke, the best way to increase wholesome states is to be very present for them. But the same is true with our difficulties. Not just opening up and gritting our teeth and bearing it, but appreciating that there are gems hidden right in our challenges. If there's confusion, then we can open up to explore and see how ignorance works or how papancha works, as Sally so beautifully talked about last night. Often it's after the fact 
But even right in the middle of it, oh, this is the confused mind, or oh, this is confused Buddha, I like to say. It's just this manifestation of mind. If there is anger, then as we look deeper and connect with our authentic experience, often things are revealed that we hadn't seen from that surface layer of anger, where we get in touch with the pain inside, or the hurt, or the fear that we uh, have covered up with a reaction. Sometimes we can get angry with righteous indignation at all the ignorance in the world. I know that one very well. But as I look at it, when I, when I get in touch or uh, discuss with others who are so disturbed and frustrated uh, with, with the world, with all the ignorance and cruelty, that if you go down deeper, underneath that frustration and anger and outrage is a place of real caring, of deep caring about the world, of deep caring about life. And if we can connect with that place that cares, not miss it because we're so lost in our outrage, that energy can be used for true transformation, making a difference. I came across uh, uh, this uh, teaching from Michael Lerner, the uh, editor of Tikkun magazine. He talked about um, cynics. And he says cynics are really idealists who've been frustrated again and again. And I think that's, that's something really worth seeing. We don't want to cover up our idealism and our vision for possibility with uh, a kind of sophisticated, oh no, it, it, nothing will ever happen, because then the world loses your caring and commitment and what you have to offer. So right underneath there, in that, that pain, there's something very precious. Our fear also holds tremendous possibilities for us. When we think we're going to be overwhelmed and we again and again connect with our fear, it calls from us a courage and uh, a strength that we wouldn't have known was there. I... um, one of my heroes is, uh, is this uh, woman, Julia Butterfly Hill, the woman who was up in the tree for uh, a couple of years uh, up in Luna in, uh, in Humboldt County. And um, she's very inspiring uh, for me and for many people. And she was, uh, she was talking about, as she went up to save this tree from being cut down, and she went up... Um, with not any preparation, thinking she was going to be up there for a couple of weeks and she didn't have a good sleeping bag and she didn't have um, really good clothes and all and she was up like 180 feet up, as uh, I think it was. And, uh, but it turned out she had this, the, the tree kept on saying to her, no, you've got to stay here. And she had this deep relationship with the tree and that was her teacher. It turned out that she went up in the winter of El Nino, which was the wettest and most miserable winter in decades and decades. And the first few months as she, she talks about her experience there, she just day to day didn't think there was any way she could continue on. And she you know, describes practically you know, holding on to the branches so she's not blown off as the wind and, and the gales and the rain comes. And, then, and she would say, she's a very spiritual person, she would, and she would say, please God, grant me the strength that I have. Give me the strength that I have to meet this challenge. And she said, when she said that, shortly after she said it, things got even worse. 
And she did this a number of times. Please give me the strength. I don't know if I have the strength for this. And again, it would just get exponentially worse than it was. And it took her, I think she said, about five times of doing this before she realized, oh, I'm asking for strength, so God is just dumping it on more to find out that place of courage and strength. Okay, I think I got it now. You know. But she, she found a place of, of depth and um, commitment and courage that she never knew was there. It's very inspiring if you ever... Uh, either see her or, or hear her or read her stuff. But right there, in the middle of the, the fear, something beautiful gets discovered. And as well, when we get lost, if we can appreciate the place that can see that we've been lost, if we can delight in the fact that there's something even stronger than the confusion that can see that, that is aware, that wakes up, that gives us tremendous confidence and faith in the practice. The uh, book on happiness, uh, one of the choices that these people make is, um, is called recasting, which is turning our pain and our sorrow into, uh, into happiness through our uh, wisdom. And here's one of my, my favorite quote from the book. Maurice Washington, 87-year-old professional musician, on his inability to play his beloved saxophone after a debilitating stroke, he says, without that saxophone in my mouth, I've learned to sing. Yeah. And that is a, a, a tremendous wisdom that doesn't get lost in self-pity that says, okay, what can I, how can I use this to continue to grow and open the heart? As the Buddha said, mentioned last time, suffering becomes a causative factor for deep faith, which becomes gladness and then joy. So that appreciation has in it an element of trust Not that everything is going to work out okay, but that everything is workable, that we can trust that our awareness can meet the moment when things get difficult and not be dwelling on the future saying, am I up to this? Will I be able to meet it? All that does is stir up the mind in fear. But we can come back and say, okay, this moment is quite workable. Because underlying that confusion is that awakened heart. And it allows us to let go of control and thinking we know how things should be. And underlying that is a deep goodness. Or concomitant with that is a goodness and a a wisdom. And when I think about the people who inspire me most as far as joy, I think of... um, the Dalai Lama, and uh, Bishop Tutu, Desmond Tutu. Those two people have seen more suffering than, I would guess, anybody in this room, perhaps all of us combined, and yet they have this infectious joy. How does that happen? It's precisely because they've come to terms with suffering and seen that there's more to life than that that there's acknowledging that, and yes, there's something even more uplifting and beautiful that can hold that. So, appreciation as a mindfulness practice. A few aspects of this appreciation I want to go into. One is um, something that's really dear to me, and that is... Um, the fact that we love goodness. I was talking about this last night with Carol, and it's just amazing that we are wired up to have our hearts be touched by goodness. You can see it when you see a baby 
it's almost impossible to see a baby and not have your heart opened by the purity and the innocence and the goodness right there. And to let ourselves be touched by goodness is a a tremendously um, wonderful invitation towards happiness. And it's here all around. You know, when Carol read that story of that, uh, that physician, you know, we just were touched, the poignancy, the generosity. And it, it opens up and reminds us of a, of a place in ourselves that is noble. Last night when, when um, Sally was giving her talk and she was talking about Walter Mitty, um, my mind went to the movie the Secret Life of Walter Mitty, which starred Danny Kaye. Remember that? And all I had to think of was Danny Kaye, even now. <laughs> and I just, there's something about him that was so good and pure and, and, and giving and loving that it just uh, wells, wells me up. When I was a teacher in, uh, in school, in public school, I, I taught for many years, uh, mostly in New York. And I would start off each year, I taught mostly fifth grade and sixth grade. Each year I'd start off with this challenge, that I would find the secret to every child's heart. Some, it was easy to feel because there they were, just delightful, beautiful beings. But some, through abuse, through confusion, through their own conditioning, would be difficult and nasty and just saw uh, ways of getting attention that were disruptive. And it was a, a great practice for me to see how I could get to see the good and the beauty in that, in that child. Not only for me to see it, but for them to see that I see it. And often it would take a, you know, just some quiet moments aside and just spending some time one-to-one. But um, invariably it was there. Because if you look enough for it, you'll find it. And this is a practice that I've had for many years, well, since I was a teacher. But along the same, at the same time, it's probably around the same time, I was very inspired by um, Neem Karoli Baba from Ram Dass's books, uh, Be Here Now, and particularly Be Here Now. And Maharaji, as he was called, had one particular instruction that I took on as, um, as a practice. And he, he said, the best form to worship God is every form. And his main instruction was, keep looking for the good wherever you are. Even if you see all the, all the ignorance and the, and the pettiness, whatever, keep on looking for the good because... What you look for, you will, you will find. And the world will corroborate whatever it is we look for. If we want to see how stupid people are and what jerks they are and, and how awful this place is, and we'll have plenty of evidence to corroborate that. But in that process, we miss out on the beauty of nature and the beauty of everyone around so I take it as a practice to keep looking for the good. And you can probably re- relate to this. My colleagues have heard me say this on probably every retreat for the last however many years. If you're in a room and somebody comes in and you know that they're seeing all your shortcomings and flaws how do you feel? Flawed, don't you? Yucky, small. 
If somebody else comes in, they might know all your flaws, they might see them, but you know that they see your beauty. They go right there and see who you really are. How do you feel? You feel beautiful, don't you? So it's not just a matter of, oh, well, we're kind of putting on rose-colored glasses. We draw out of others what we look for. That's one of the, the wonderful things about having interviews and doing interviews. You know, basically, one of my, my practices is everybody comes in and I'm looking at a Buddha in there. Yeah, there's greed, hatred, and delusion, and sloth, and torpor, and restlessness, and agitation, and lust, and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah but there's a Buddha right in there. So it's something that you can practice and you can see it in others and you can empower others as well. Because when you see it in them, they start feeling it in themselves. Uh, Many years ago, I remember um, I had this good fortune to be on the receiving end of somebody believing in me. This was in 1975. And uh, Robert Hall, who's one of the teachers here at Spirit Rock, uh, was uh, at Naropa Institute, and he was like a, a big star, the great Gestalt psychologist, uh, Robert Hall, psychiatrist, uh, Robert Hall. And, uh, and we spent a little time, and uh, he said at one point, um, we were just hanging out, and he said, what do you, what do you think you're going to do with your life? And I said, you know, I don't know, but I think I, I, I'm going to do, I want to do something worthwhile and make a contribution. And he looked at me and he said, I think you will. And when he, when he said he thought I would, all of a sudden, I really thought I would. Oh, gosh, maybe it's not just a pipe dream. We can empower people just by believing in them. And this is what the world needs. It needs empowered goodness. So loving that goodness and seeing it around is a, is a wonderful practice and a great contribution. And in that, we can also realize how much we love the Dharma and love practice. There's something that's called you to do this, isn't there? How did that happen? Somehow you heard a call. And to really celebrate that, that gift you've been given, that bodhicitta connecting with that seed of awakening and nourishing it and having the opportunity to take time to nourish it. This is incredible source of happiness. In one of the, the lists, there are sources of bases of power, bases of success, called the idipadas. And one of these four idipadas is falling in love with the Dharma, where when you, when you practice and you've touched something deep and genuine, it's like there's no turning back. It's so compelling that everything else pales with comparison in some way. And we, we long to get back to that place of purity and authenticity and truth. This is a wonderful aspect of appreciation practice. Out of that appreciation, another aspect besides loving goodness is a sense of wonder. You know how what it's like to to walk around the, uh, the grounds here and, and you ever get mesmerized by a plant growing? You know, it's like you're back in the 60s and you say, wow, there's life happening there. Because we slow down enough to really see the magic all around us. And that quality of a deep investigation one of the factors of enlightenment, letting yourself be a child again and just seeing things anew, seeing things fresh. 
And in that seeing things fresh and new, sometimes you do feel like a child, like, oh my goodness, how much there is to know. Now you can have that, I, that, that thought and think, oh, how little I know and how much I need to learn and get really bummed out by it instead of having beginner's mind. But this is, this is missing out on this sense of wonder and mystery. I remember going into uh, a, um, an interview at one point. I had been practicing oh, for about five, five or six years or so. And I went into an interview and was seeing things that I'd never seen before. And I said to Joseph, you know, I don't know what I've been doing for the last five or six years, but this is like a whole other dimension in reality. You know? And he said, oh yeah, I know that feeling. And I said, you do? And he said, yeah, I get it every time I sit. You know? <laughs> and then he looked at me and he leaned forward and he said, you know what? It's like we're on the tip of the iceberg. I remember when he said that, it's like we're on the tip of the iceberg. He said it with this real twinkle and sparkle in his eye, like, wow, you know. Oh, great, how much, what a, how much there is in store for me. We're all on the tip of the iceberg. When I, actually my original connection to to spiritual practice was uh, when I was a little kid and I, I was um, awed by astronomy. I loved astronomy. I used to drag my parents to the Hayden Planetarium each, uh, every couple of months when they changed the show because in New York City you don't see the stars that much so you go to the planetarium, you know, and I'd just look up at the sky and just go, And it put things in a dimension where my little drama or even this little speck floating through space called planet Earth uh, didn't seem so ultimately significant. It opens us up to have that perspective of awe and wonder and opening to the mystery. This is uh, Albert Einstein says... The most beautiful and profound emotion is the sensation of the mystical. It is the sower of all true science. One to whom this emotion is a stranger who can no longer wonder and stand wrapped in awe is as good as dead. The mystery. It's a great and wonderful mystery that anything is and that we are. And the more we can feel the mystery and be the mystery, the more we let go of the sense of needing to do anything and we merge with the mystery, with the divine. That quality of wonder, along with uh, loving goodness, is appreciation practice, naturally leads to a sense of gratitude. And I talked a bit about this last time and read the, the discourse on blessings. I hope you've been reflecting on them from time to time and rejoicing in your good karma. Wasn't it fun to go through that list and say, oh, pretty cool, okay, how neat. Well, the more we can get in touch with our gratitude, the more we open ourselves up. I said this in one evening, uh, uh, late night teaching, that it's, it's like, um, uh, it's the satellite dish that lets us receive the blessings all around, of, uh, all around us as we open up with a sense of heart, heartful gratitude and devotion to the mystery. That's what Sokni Rinpoche says that devotion and gratitude, it is like a satellite dish receiving the blessings of the lineage. And my, my wife, Jane, who um, has been a, a really a good teacher in gratitude practice, uh, has a, a wonderful practice that she does every night. 
she has a gratitude buddy. Actually, now she has two gratitude buddies, I think. And each night before they go to bed, uh, they email each other on what they're grateful for in, uh, in the day. And it's had a profound shift in, uh, in her and in me. I get the benefits of that. Sometimes I'm even the person who wants one of the things that she's grateful for, so that has a benefit. But it kind of rubs off. And uh, in those joy groups that I, I mentioned, one of the things that I, I asked people to do was have a daily gratitude practice. And um, it was very profound. People found it quite profound to name and um, clearly underscore their blessings. So I, uh, I encourage you to, to do that. Before you go to bed each evening, just reflect on what's good in your life, what you're grateful for. And with that, as you get in touch with the gratitude for your blessings, you let go of the shoulds and the expectations and this better happen and, you know, well, life is kind of giving me a raw deal if... And it allows us to open up to things just as they are. Because in that opening up to things just as they are, we see clearly, and we do see all the blessings. One of the choices in the happiness book is um, options, that one is flexible, that one lets go of one's game plan and is able to see, oh, this is what is called for now. Because if you're stuck in your own idea about what th- how things should be, um, you're stuck basically. And so to open up with a sense of um, flexibility, then you can more listen to what's needed next. Um, Some of you have heard the story where I was at a a crossroads in my life. This was uh, 1976, it was. And I didn't know quite what to do I had a few different choices of either continuing teaching in New York or going up to the center in Massachusetts and being on staff there or traveling to Asia or moving out to California. And all of them seemed viable choices, and I didn't want to make a mistake. So I went around and around, what should I do, what should I do? I couldn't figure out what to do. I finally went to somebody who uh, was a very wise mentor for me, named Reverend Miller. This is when I would go out each summer out to Colorado, to Naropa, and um, uh, he was in Denver. He was a psychic. Five dollars a reading. (laughs) Wasn't in it for the money. And I gave him these options. I said, you know, I just don't know what to do with my life. What, uh, What should I, what do you think? What's the right one? And uh, he thought for a minute, and he said, well, um, I'm not going to tell you what to do. I said, no, too bad. He said, but I will tell you one thing. I said, yeah. He said, it doesn't matter. (laughs) And I said, what do you mean it doesn't matter? That's my life you're talking about. And he said, he believed in spirit guides and guardian angels and things like that and devas. and Whether you believe in those things or not or just believe that there's some forces at work besides your own limited control of how things are. He said, if you're frozen, if you're stuck in fear and indecision, then your guides can't help you. But once you take the first step, the step that feels right in this moment, then you put yourself in motion and your guides and your, the devas can help you and you can see, oh, well, this looks like it's going in the right direction or no, this doesn't look right. Oh, maybe I should go here and maybe here. Or often, well, this leads to this and this leads to this that you could never have figured out. You know, like that Goethe quote that I, that I quoted, um, Scottish Himalayan Expedition. Letting go of your expectations and shoulds is an essential element to opening up to joy and happiness. Because then you can be in rhythm, in the flow of life, instead of trying to control it.
Oh God, <laughs> I'm going to have to really move on. Okay, uh, I'm on page two of. Uh, okay, so out of this abundance, <laughs> abundance of things to say, is um, a natural generosity that comes. Because there's a sufficiency, there's, you have everything you need. You're not lacking, you're not looking to, to get more or fix. It's the first paramita that the Buddha talked about, the first perfection, generosity. It is a direct path to happiness. Whether it's in service or in um, sharing our, our gifts... I came across this quote, I'll share. The unceasing manifestation of life, the infinite creativity that we see around us, points to the principle of generosity. When we express generosity, we are aligning ourselves in harmony with the universe, because the universe is infinitely creative. It feels good when we do this. It feels right. Often we're fooled into thinking happiness lies in acquiring, but we can never get enough to satisfy that habit of mind. Even stronger than our tendency to possess and acquire is the joy that comes from sharing and bringing happiness to others. What we share of ourselves and our resources is the currency of our caring and loving heart. That's how it works. We're in harmony with life when we express our abundance and share our gifts, which is really one of the, the keys to um, authentic happiness that this fellow Seligman found, that it's not so much in getting, it's not so much in having um, pleasures, but in finding out what our strengths are and expressing them, expressing those gifts to the world. And when we do that, it's like we're, we're in the flow. You know that, expre- that, that concept of flow or being in the zone? Well, that's an experience of not being around. It's a, it's a complete anatta experience. Because when you're taken over by something, you're not doing it. It's doing you. And this is true when you express yourself through, through creativity, whether it's through singing or writing or drawing or dancing, where you get out of your mind and just and let life move you and let my life move through you. And it happens also when we express our goodness in um, uh, bringing happiness to others. So this ultimate generosity is both our nature and nature of things. And when we're aligned with it, we open up to joy and happiness. Okay, maybe all of this stuff on the appreciation side is uh, not, might be too love and light for some people here. So I wanted to also mention a few aspects of joy that have to do with the joy of restraint, which the Buddha valued and talked about tremendously, the simplification of mind. There is the joy of letting go. We talked about this renunciation. Guy gave a beautiful talk on renunciation. It's the opposite of grasping. Letting go is not rejection. It is a lightening of the baggage. It's coming from a place of contentment, of sufficiency and abundance. When we really feel that abundance, it's no effort to let go. We don't need more. And initially, it might require some practice at restraint. No, I don't need this, or I can let go of this. Okay, I can do it. But as we practice it more deeply, we see, oh, it feels so good. You know how you feel when you clean out your closet, and there's just all this space? feels really good, doesn't it? You don't 
say, oh, well, no, maybe I should take all those things back. It's like, oh, thank goodness I have all this space. Well, it's the same way what, that we're doing here. We're letting go of our thoughts. We're letting go of our, all of our confusion. We're letting go of our wants and seeing, oh, there's a completeness in this moment just as it is. And we don't get crowded. We get a balance that comes from that spaciousness. Because we crave simplicity. We crave it. You know, real simple magazine, simple abundance, this whole movement towards simplicity. Because our culture is so, has been so um, good at acquiring and we get all these messages. That's where happiness lies. But some, somehow the system has, uh, you know, uh, there's, there's, there's a, a, a flaw in the system and all of our gears get bottled up. We say, no, I don't need all of this. I need some balance. I need some simplicity. This is from Peace Pilgrim, who was uh, also a, an inspiration for me, this, this woman who embodied simplicity. She says, when one is in line with the truth... There is a calmness and a serenity and unhurriedness. No more striving or straining about anything. Life is full, life is good, but life is not overcrowded. That's a very important thing I've learned. If your life is in harmony with your part in the life pattern, and if you're obedient to the laws which govern this universe, then your life is full and good, but not overcrowded. If it is overcrowded, you're doing more than is right for you to do, more than is your job to do in the total scheme of things. This letting go is what the Buddha talked of in the Third Noble Truth. As Ajahn Chah says, you let go a little, you have a little freedom. You let go a lot, you have a lot of freedom. You let go completely, you have complete freedom. Your troubles with the world will come to an end. So that joy of letting go has a very uh, important expression in our interrelating with others. And that is acting from a place of integrity where we don't act on all of our impulses of aversion or grasping, where we have enough restraint so that we have harmony in our life. And this is what the Buddha talked of as sila, the foundation for an awakened mind. Sila, samadhi, and panya. The foundation being sila, right action, living ethically, and then developing the meditation and opening up to full wisdom. And he talks about the different kinds of joys and happinesses that, uh, that lay people have. He says there are four main happinesses that most lay people can experience or can, um, can appreciate, even who don't meditate. There's the joy of, or the happiness that comes from being free from debt, there's the happiness that comes from having sufficient resources to take care of yourself and your loved ones. There's the happiness that comes from having enough abundance to be generous with others. And then the fourth is what he calls the bliss of blamelessness. That is living with integrity. And he says, compared to the bliss of blamelessness, those first three aren't one-sixteenth as potent a source of happiness. And it makes sense when you think about it because you can have all the material possessions but if you're not living in harmony you are um, you can't appreciate and enjoy it. But there's people from all circumstances, poor people, many people in both of those books had uh, were in real um, uh, poverty or um, not very good circumstances, who have tremendous joy and happiness. If you're living a life of integrity, that is a key. And if you can keep from 
acting on your impulses. There's a tremendous power in it. This is um, an, uh, a story from a friend of mine who taught in, in prison. She said, um, she gave this challenge to one of the prisoners to not act on his aggression. And this is what he came, came back. He says, you know, you get assigned a seat in the cafeteria and if you sit anywhere else, they slap you with points. You don't want points because enough of them will put you in the hole, solitary. I had enough points already, so I needed to be careful. Bummer, because one, one of the men sitting near me at lunch wouldn't stop razzing me. I tried to ignore him, but he wouldn't stop it, and I was getting really pissed. Then I remembered the challenge and decided I had nothing to lose for trying. First, I noticed what the anger was doing to my body. It was tight all over. It was really uncomfortable, and I thought that if I punched this guy out, there'd be some release. At least it would shut him up. But then I thought, hey, that challenge was to not act aggressively. I started thinking about how much I wanted to punch him because my anxiety was cranking up. But then I thought about the challenge to not act with aggression. Man, I knew if I didn't move from the table, I was going to punch him and lose the challenge. But if I did move, I'd get points and I could end up in the hole. Dang. Brian slapped both knees and sitting straight and tall in his chair announced, I decided to just suck it up and move to another table. And get this, as soon as I sat down at another table, all the tension in my body just disappeared. Like magic. Lunch tasted great. He continued with great animation. But that's not the best part of the story. The best part is that this guy came up to me after the meal and apologized. He apologized. He was so stunned by what I had done that he said he was left sitting there feeling ridiculous. Raising both hands in the air, leaning back in his chair, he exclaimed, no one ever apologizes in prison, not to me anyway, not for, trying to, not for trying to start a fight. And here was this guy saying he was sorry. You know, I think we both left feeling satisfied. Imagine that. There's a tremendous joy and gift that we give in acting with integrity. Because we have this sense of being connected to others in life. And this is a a, a tremendous source of joy, connection, community, deep friendship, as as Carol uh, so, so beautifully talked about the other night, the whole of the holy life. And we remind each other of our goodness. We remind each other of the blessing of friendship. Just imagine if we didn't have spiritual friends, what our practice would be like. Imagine your life without it, and then imagine or appreciate your life with it. You're not alone. And that can express itself as mudita, taking delight in the joy of everybody around you. Because there's more happiness in the world when you feel that connection and see it and appreciate there's no quota on happiness. It's not that if they've got some, there's less for me. If that were true, then if somebody had anger and they were around you, there'd be less for you. That's not how it works, though. And so you just see, ah, here's more happiness, and you can actually... Ride that happiness and open your heart with it. Finally, there is the joy of liberation itself, which the Buddha said, there's no higher happiness than peace, a mind free of greed, hatred, and delusion. And the Buddha said, if you aim for the highest, you get all the others in, um, uh, in Hindu Uh, teachings, there's this expression, sat-chit-ananda, being, consciousness, and bliss. And it says that living being, that being, when it is conscious of itself, pure consciousness and being expresses itself as bliss. That's the nature of life. It wants to share and create and be abundant. And in our understanding of the peace that's possible 
we express that natural goodness. And in that is the highest happiness. This is from Rumi. Keep knocking and the joy inside will eventually open a window and look outside to see who's there. So let's sit for a moment. This talk was given by James Barris at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on February 25, 2004. It is an offering of the... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.